opportunity to be with you. I've been blessed already by this time together in worship. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1? 1 Corinthians 1, we'll begin in verse 4. And we'll be looking this morning at a prayer that Paul offers God for the church members in Corinth, to whom he's writing this letter under the inspiration of the Spirit. And because of the Spirit's inspiration, these words are not only Paul's words to the Corinthians, these are also God's words to the Corinthians, and they are also God's words for us as well. In these verses, Paul offers a prayer of thanksgiving to God concerning the Corinthians, but we will see that throughout Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, though it's for the Corinthians, he really is giving thanks for Christ from the beginning to the end of it. Paul gives thanks for the grace of Christ, the riches of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gifts of Christ, the return of Christ, and the fellowship of Christ. And he thanks God for giving all of these things to the Christians in Corinth. Let's jump right in. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. First, Paul gives thanks for the grace of Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not just arbitrarily sharing his prayer journal with the Corinthians. Why does he include this prayer in this letter? Well, certainly it's to encourage them. It's encouraging to say, I pray for you guys. Uh, This is also included to instruct them. We know that in part because almost all of Paul's letters begin with a prayer, typically a prayer of thanksgiving like this one, But the content of these introductory prayers always, always relate to the particular situation that's happening in that church. Uh, And that's very much the case with this prayer in 1 Corinthians. So the theology in this opening prayer relates to the broader message of this letter, hand in glove. And so because this is the case, I think this is in part meant to give the Corinthians an example for how they, too, should pray. For how they should think about what's happening in their church. So when Paul says, this is how I pray for you, he's indirectly suggesting, and you should pray like this, too. And if you would, it would help you in your current situation with your issues. Well, what were those issues that Paul wanted to address in 1 Corinthians? Perhaps you're familiar with this letter. Uh, This church had... Numerous problems, but right at the top of the list were divisions in the church. And that's the first thing Paul starts to address right after this prayer of thanksgiving. If you look down in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. In 3.3, he says, there is jealousy and strife among you. In 11.19 and 20, he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? You are worse off for coming together as a church. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are 
divisions among you. And for these quarrelsome, divisive, jealous, contentious Christians, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. I give thanks because grace was given to you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Paul is hopeful for them despite all their issues because God's grace in Christ is theirs. More than hopeful, Paul is thankful for them despite all their issues because they are those to whom God has freely given grace in Christ. Do you know any Christians, true Christians, who still live in jealousy and strife and divisiveness and quarreling? I want you to point at that person. No, 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 don't actually do that. Okay, when was the last time you thanked God that he had given that kind of person grace in Christ? And if you don't do this, I wonder if maybe your attitude toward the sin of that Christian has itself been sinful. I think about how powerfully this simple prayer of thanksgiving would work to undermine the issues in Corinth we just read about. If you prayed for other Christians and thanked God for the grace that He has given them in Christ, wouldn't that work against jealousy in your heart? Can you seethe in jealousy towards someone if you are remembering that all the good things they enjoy are gifts of God's grace to them? Wouldn't thanking God for the grace that He gave a Christian brother in Christ work against quarreling and strife in your heart? If you remember how dearly favored and loved God has treated this brother in giving him grace, would you not want to join God in being gracious toward him? If you thanked God for the grace that he gave a Christian sister in this church, wouldn't that work against divisiveness in your heart? If you remember how God in Christ has brought that sinner close by his grace, would you still insist on remaining relationally distant from them? It would be harder to if the Spirit of God is in you. So Paul said in verse 4, he offers this thanks to God for the Corinthians, and he says he does so regularly in an always kind of way. Did you note that in verse 4? I give thanks to my God always for you. So if you are praying regularly for one another, prayers of thanksgiving like this, God, I thank you for the grace that you have given. Insert the name of the people around you. Imagine the difference that that will make in the way that you think about these people and in the way that you treat one another. Well, what exactly is Paul thanking God for when he thanks them for giving grace to the Corinthians? The grace of God in Christ given to Christians is a massive reality. The grace of God in Christ refers to all of the benefits associated with salvation in Christ's name. It refers to all of the blessings and gifts that God gives as part of salvation in Christ's name. It refers to all the help and mercy and strength and divine intervention that God gives to Christians in salvation. The grace of God given to Christians in Christ refers to 
everything that God gives Christians in Christ Jesus. Well, how much is that? There is no good thing left ungiven. Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No blessing left out. Romans 8.32, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, then how will he not with him graciously give us all things? All things? That's what it said. All things. When Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace toward us in Ephesians, do you remember how he describes those riches? He calls them immeasurable. The immeasurable riches of his grace. Which means there's not a limit to them. It encompasses all things, everything good and needful. I think that Paul has this idea of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in mind, this every spiritual blessing, this all things good and needful when he thanks God for the grace in Christ. And I think that because that's how Paul explains himself in verse 5. Look there with me. After giving thanks generally for God's grace to the Corinthians, he goes into more detail and now gives thanks for the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. Verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge. In every way you were enriched in Him. Paul speaks about this same stupefying reality just a little bit later in the letter. At the end of chapter 3, Paul tells the Corinthians in 3.21, All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Well, how does that work? Next verse. You are Christ's. And Christ is God's. I think we can agree that all things belong to Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 15. God has put all things in subjection under Christ. God has seated the risen Christ at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above all names that are named. And God put all things under his feet. And then Ephesians 1 says, God gave Christ as the head of all things to the church. If you are Christ's, all things are yours. Has God given you grace in Christ? Then you are enriched in every way. You lack no good thing. Christ gives uh, all things of the riches of his salvation to us in the manner and timing that he knows is best for us. But all things are yours if you are Christ's. This is part of why all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And this is true for every Christian on the planet right now and through all of history. They are enriched in every way in Christ. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he encourages them along these same lines. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, just like we sang about earlier. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And these are true riches. These are not the riches that thieves can break in and steal. Every blessing, all things good and needful, including the things most good and needful, the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation to God. In the first half of verse 5, Paul speaks comprehensively of these all things, this immeasurable riches that believers have in Christ. But the second half of the verse, he highlights just one part of those riches of grace that God has given. Look there. Paul thanks God that they have been enriched in every way, and then thanks God specifically they have been enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. Well, what does this mean? Does Paul believe that the Christians in Corinth literally know everything? You want me to say no, don't you? And I will. No, he doesn't actually believe that. In this very same letter, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says directly, We know in part, now we see in a mirror dimly, I know in part. And at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul hypothetically and hyperbolically speaks about speech and knowledge. And he says, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, and if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And in these verses, by use of this hyperbole, Paul implicitly affirms, uh, neither you nor I have all knowledge and speech. At least, not in one sense, right? Paul isn't saying the Corinthians are made omniscient by the grace of God in salvation, clearly. So what is he saying? He is thanking God that the church in Corinth is enriched in Christ with all the spiritual gifts related to speaking and knowledge. When God saved people in Corinth and called them to be His people, He also gave them the Spirit. We just confessed this truth together when we read the article in your statement of faith on the Holy Spirit. When God saved His people, He gave them the Spirit and the Spirit gave varying gifts to each Christian. And all of the gifts of speaking and all of the gifts of knowledge were present in the church in Corinth. God withheld none of these kinds of gifts which were needed for the church to be built up. He withheld no kind of speech, no kind of knowledge in the gifts that He gave to various members. Charles Hodge, a theologian from the 1800s, writes the phrase, "...all speech and all knowledge..." refers to all the gifts of speaking and knowledge. Example, some were prophets, some were teachers. In that day, some of the gift of tongues. And these were different forms of the gift of utterance, all speech. And I think this understanding jives perfectly with the broader message of the letter. The very same words translated in this verse as speech and knowledge come up all the time in the chapters on the spiritual gifts in the church, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. This understanding of the phrase also jives perfectly with the rest of this little prayer in chapter 1. Catch this, verse 5. In Christ you have in your church all the gifts of teaching and knowledge. 
verse 7, so you are not lacking in any gift. That is, not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is the same Greek word Paul always uses for the spiritual gifts, or almost always, charismata. Okay, so listen carefully. Listen carefully to what Paul is saying here. All of the capacities that any Christian in Corinth had to know and to teach Christian doctrine, that was part of how God was enriching all of the Christians in Corinth with the true riches of Christ. Okay, think about what this means for you and your church. When God gives some people in the church with the ability to teach and some to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, which He does to everyone to some degree, and then He gives some such that they are able to share that growth in knowledge of the Lord with others in a way that's understandable. Well, this is a way that God is showing grace to the whole church, not just to those individuals who are gifted in this way. Part of how God pours forth the riches of His grace to His people in Christ is by divinely empowering church members to grow in knowledge and then by gifting some of those church members to be able to speak about what they've learned. And whenever this happens, God is enriching His church in Christ. If you are getting anything good out of this sermon, do you know what's happening? God is sharing more of the riches of His grace in Christ with His body. I hope during this sermon you are becoming richer with these true riches. Now we need to ask another important question about this phrase. Of all the riches of grace, of all the spiritual gifts that Paul could have singled out, why these two? Well, it's important for Paul to pray a public prayer of thanksgiving about these two graces because these areas were a significant part of what was creating divisions in the church. So Paul puts his finger right on the gifts that were making them proud and divisive, and he thanks God for them. And in doing so, he affirms, you have no reason to boast and be puffed up about any of these gifts because they are from God, they are given in Christ, and they are meant for all Christians and not just for your own personal benefit. If you look down to the middle of chapter 1 again, remember in verse 10 and 11, Paul said he heard there were divisions and quarreling in the church. Well, what do you mean? What kind of divisions? Paul says, let me tell you what I mean. Quite literally. Look at, look at verse 12. What I mean is, don't you love when Paul says things like that? Explain yourself. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Okay, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Paul, you know, he's an apostle. Cephas is Peter. He's another apostle of Christ, one of the original 12. Apollos, not an apostle. Okay, so one of these things is not like the other. But Apollos was a very gifted Christian teacher and preacher in the early church. And when we're introduced to this guy in Acts 18, he's described as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, who spoke and taught accurately, who spoke boldly, who powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So what these three 
have in common, Paul, Peter, Apollos, is that they're all significant teachers in Christian doctrine and proclaimers of the gospel. And apparently what's happening is the Corinthians are dividing by identifying with one teacher or the other and then getting puffed up over and against one another by boasting in the knowledge and speaking gifts of whichever teacher they identified with. Paul says this directly in chapter 4. He says, I've applied all these things to myself, Paul, and Apollos, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Now, perhaps those three names rang a bell for you. If so, you are astute indeed. Do you remember when I read from chapter 3 earlier how the Corinthians were enriched in every way? And Paul said, all things are yours in Christ. Do you remember when I said that? Not to me if you remember. Great. Do you remember what Paul listed as representative samples of the all things that were theirs? He said, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. All are yours. Okay, the same crew. The very men the Corinthians were tempted to boast in and quarrel about. Paul says, they're all yours. All of them belong to all of you because you are Christ's. All of the spiritual gifts God gave to these men belong to all of you. You've been enriched in every way in Christ. Because all of the gifts God gives to individual Christians are for the whole church. The gift of one Christian is intended to enrich the whole body. So stop, Paul says, trying to distinguish yourself above other church members by boasting in the speech or knowledge of this teacher or that teacher. Because all of the knowledge and speaking gifts that anyone possesses is given to them by Christ. And it's all for you. And it's all for all of you. So stop being puffed up against other Christians about things like this. That's exactly what Paul urged the Corinthians before he told them, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, the world. He told them, let no one boast in men. So if you grow because of some man's teaching, don't boast in that man. And don't boast in yourself because of your association with that man. I go to Redeemer and our pastor is very gifted. You should do what Paul does. Just tell God thank you for being so gracious and rich towards you and toward all of his people. Now, some church members in Corinth were puffed up not only boasting in the gifts and speech and knowledge of leaders, but also by boasting in the gifts of speech or knowledge they themselves had. This is why Paul said uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And like boasting in the speech and knowledge of gifted teachers, to boast in your own speech, or to boast in your own knowledge that you have of Christian truth, you are missing it, that these things come from Christ. 
And God grows you in knowledge, not so that you can feel good about yourself, but so that you can be a blessing to the whole church. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I love how Paul puts it in Colossians 2, 3. He says, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And all that Christ is and has is ours because we are one with him again. And that includes these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Christ gives us, Christ pours on us some of the treasures of his wisdom and knowledge as we speak the truth in love to one another, as we use our gifts to serve and speak truth to one another. So any speech or knowledge that comes from a teacher or comes from someone else in the body or comes from you that actually nourishes your soul or nourishes someone else's soul, What's happening there? That is just part of how Christ is sharing some of the treasures of his wisdom and knowledge with the church. It's part of how, again, Christ himself is enriching his people with the riches of Christ. What is happening right now is glorious. It takes the eyes of faith to see it. Christ is enriching us from the treasures of his wisdom and knowledge. After giving thanks for the grace of Christ and riches in Christ, Paul considers next the gospel of Christ in his prayer for the Corinthians. Look at verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So the testimony about Christ is the gospel, the message about the salvation that Jesus won for sinners in his life and death and resurrection. And Paul came to Corinth testifying about who Christ was and what he had done. And he proclaimed that Christ was the Son of God who became a man, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross, and when he did, took upon himself the sins of his people and paid the penalty they deserve for their sins, an eternity's worth of God's wrath against sin. And then Christ rose from the dead, showing... There was nothing left to pay. And he paid for the sins of his people in full. So that all who turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ receive a full pardon from their sin. They will be declared righteous before God as if they had never sinned and rather had always kept all of God's law perfectly because Christ did. And then they're enriched with every spiritual blessing in him eternal life, the joy of personally knowing God, and on and on and on and on we could go. And Paul testified to this good news about Christ to the Corinthians. But though Paul testified about it, who was it that confirmed it? What does this verse say? Well, it's a passive verb, but the implied subject is God. God confirmed this testimony about Christ among them. He established it among them as true. 
and as the only hope of being right with God. Now, in what sense was the gospel confirmed among the Corinthians? In context, I believe Paul is saying the truthfulness of the gospel was ratified by the spiritual gifts the Corinthians received and began exercising whenever they embraced the gospel. So, another way to say that, the way that their lives changed after they believed the gospel, the way that they started serving one another and trying to do spiritual good to one another, validated the message of the gospel among them. When the Spirit enriches His people with gifts and gives them desires to minister to other people in the body, to grow in grace and knowledge. And as these Christians begin to exercise their gifts, and so the body actually does start to grow in the knowledge of God and in holiness, uh, imperfectly, but actually, all of this validates the reality of God's grace and confirms the message of the gospel. Do you see... Are you looking for it? Do you see God confirming the truthfulness of the gospel among you similarly? I hope you do. Here's what you would look for. Do the people of this church serve one another and seek to bless one another and do spiritual good to one another? Are the people in this church growing in the knowledge of God together and growing in holiness imperfectly but actually? Do you grow in grace when Pastor Ryan uses the gifts God gave him to teach his word? When the body grows and serves and ministers and works together like this, this is the Spirit working to give divine confirmation of the testimony about Christ. Now maybe you think, well, that'd be great if we could have that kind of divine confirmation, but... I know this is your first time here, so you may not know we've got some issues, or at least some of the people in this church still have some issues. Paul is thanking God for confirming the gospel in this way among the church in Corinth. Okay? They've got big-time issues. But despite all their remaining sin and failings, not only did God graciously work in their hearts to give them faith to believe the gospel, but then God graciously worked in their church to confirm the reality of the gospel message by their experience of life together in the church as they grew and ministered together by the Spirit. So when you see in your church family this kind of confirming evidence of the gospel, what should you do? You should thank God. You should thank God. If you want to tune out what I'm going to say for the next three minutes and thank God for these things, that's fine with me. In fact, if you keep your eyes open, I won't even know that you're doing it. In verse 7, Paul moves on from speaking of the confirmed gospel of Christ and then continues to thank God for the gifts of Christ, much like he did at the end of verse 5. So look with me there now. Verse 7, here Paul gives thanks for the gifts of Christ so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the words, so that, at the beginning of verse 7, indicates that what follows is the purpose or result of whatever Paul was talking about previously. And the result 
of God's enriching them in Christ in every way was not only the confirmation of the gospel, but it also resulted in their not lacking any gift. That makes sense, doesn't it? To hear that being enriched in every way in Christ results in the fact that you don't lack. After giving thanks for how God enriched them, specifically in all speech and knowledge in verse 5, I think Paul zooms out the lens and gives thanks for how God has given them all of the spiritual gifts. God built the members of this church together and sovereignly distributed gifts such that this church possessed every gift of grace that they needed. Not just the ones having to do with speaking and knowledge. Of course, when Paul says right, that he gives thanks to God by saying, you are not lacking in any gift, he doesn't mean that each person has all of the spiritual gifts. Paul is very clear that's not the case in 1 Corinthians 12. Rather, and this is wonderful, go with me here in your mind, even though each member of the body only had some spiritual gifts, it could still be said about all the church that you all are not lacking in any gift. All the gifts belong to all of you. Because Christ gives men gifts for the edification of the whole church. So the gifts that God gave you, the opportunities you have to serve, the capacities you have for serving well in this or that way, these gifts that you have belong to the whole church family. To be a part of a healthy church is not to lack in any gift. Because whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos, or the fellow church member sitting on your left right now, or the fellow church member sitting on your right right now, all of these are yours, if you are Christ. If you're a member of this church, then Christ could say to the whole church, all things are yours, insert your name, is yours. What's your last name, Cooper? Cooper Dunley. Did I say it right? Nunley. All right, the Lord knows, and you know. Cooper Nunley is yours. Okay, what's your name? Paul. Paul is yours. Did I mess that up too? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's okay. Justin, Justin. He's yours too, okay? Everyone who has the last name Hall in this church is yours. Do you think of yourself as belonging to the church like that? Does that kind of make you uncomfortable? I wonder if it kind of made Paul uncomfortable to write his own name and say, Paul is yours. Do you belong to Christ? Does Christ share all that belongs to him with his church? Well, then what does that mean for you? God has gifted all Christians by his spirit in Christ as part of his gracious plan to enrich his people in grace and make sure they don't lack anything they need to grow. So God has gifted you by his spirit, all of you. Whether or not you have the gift related, any gifts related to speaking or knowledge, you have been gifted in such a way that Christ's plan is to enrich his people in true riches 
through you. When you use your spirit-given gifts to do good to the church, any kind of good, any kind of true good as God defines it, this is Christ doing good through you to his people. This is Christ using you to pour out more of the riches of his grace on the other members of this body. And when you are being served by the various members of this church, this is Christ serving you with what is his. And Christ working to build you up. It's amazing, isn't it? Certainly worth a prayer of thanks to God about. It's not just speakers and teachers and knowledge you need. You need the good things that come from all the spiritual gifts. And I'm convinced that it's not just true for the church in Corinth, but it's true for every healthy local church family that you're not lacking in any grace or gift that God knows that you need to grow in grace and be kept as His until the end. Even if the members here can be contentious or boastful at times. The sufficiency of God's grace. Sufficiency meaning you lack nothing needful. The sufficiency of God's grace is on brilliant display whenever the various parts of the body serve the church in accordance with how God has gifted them. And don't overcomplicate what it means for God to be, for God to have gifted you in a certain way. Just wherever you have an opportunity to serve, do it. And God will bless the church through your gifts. In the second half of verse 7, Paul transitions the thought of his prayer from thanking God that the Corinthian church enjoys a full set of spiritual gifts together to then speaking of the Lord's return. He says, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has given thanks so far about the Corinthians for the grace of Christ, the riches of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gifts of Christ, and now he celebrates in thankful prayer the return of Christ. And the previous points of this prayer lead quite naturally to giving thanks about the return of Christ. Because when Christ is revealed from heaven, that is when all the riches of God's grace in Christ will finally be received experientially by all of Christ's people. We will have every spiritual blessing, not just by faith, and by promise, but we will have them in hand when Christ is revealed from heaven. When Christ is revealed from heaven, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places will be revealed and given with him. And when Christ returns, that will be the ultimate confirmation of the truthfulness of the gospel. The ultimate proof that Christ's work really does save us from God's judgment and bring us into loving fellowship with Him. The ultimate validation that you were right, and it was worth it to repent of all your sin and trust in Christ. And the church does have all spiritual gifts they need to keep the faith and finish the race until the Lord comes back. But Paul says later in 1 Corinthians that these spiritual gifts are actually just temporary provisions that won't be needed 
at least some of them, after the Lord comes back. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. As only some people being gifted in a special way with knowledge. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when Christ is revealed, the partial will pass away. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the present experience of the Spirit that the church enjoys, while it's wonderful, it is not the fullness of the experience of the Spirit we will have in the gifts of the Spirit that Christians have now. That does not represent the completion or the perfection or the highest blessing of the Christian. There's a sense in which our spiritual gifts that we have in this life are just dim foretastes of the glory to come that Christ will give us by His Spirit. And so even though the church has all things needful for this life in this age, we still eagerly await the revelation of Jesus. So here again, this prayer is highly instructive for the Corinthians, I think. The gifts of the Spirit that the Corinthians were tempted to boast about are all going to be eclipsed, are all going to be outshined at the revelation of Jesus. You've got something better to boast about. You've got something better to be eager about than your own personal spiritual gifts and understanding of doctrine in this life. And it is the coming revelation of Jesus. In verse 8, Paul continues to speak about the grace and help that God will give to Christians as they wait for Christ's return. Look at verse 8. It says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. So Paul is confident he who began a good work in the Corinthians will complete it. There's still a lot of sins in the church in Corinth that they were still guilty of when Paul wrote this letter. But Paul looked with thankfulness and hope to the day when all of these Corinthian Christians would be not guilty of any sin anymore before God. What does this verse say? They will be found guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Imagine how this kind of prayer and this kind of perspective should soften your heart toward the Christians around you. Even those who struggle mightily with quarrelsomeness or pride. Okay, thank God for His grace in them. And thank God that He will sustain such a one to the end. Picture the day when Justin Hall presents is presented by Jesus guiltless. Be thankful to God for that. And for all the other members of this church, how would that change the way you treated them if you consider them in light of the fact that God is right now at work in their life, sustaining them in a state of grace until the end, and then picturing them standing guiltless before Christ in the day of Christ? God, in the end, is not going to pin their sin against them and make them pay for it. Is that how you're treating them now? This is amazing. This is amazing. 
the most cantankerous Christian you know. If he is a true Christian, okay, will be guiltless before Christ one day. God must be thanked for this, this great sustaining grace. In this life, God withholds no gift and no grace from his people they need to persevere in faith. This promise to sustain until the end highlights God's faithfulness. Right? When you hear verse 8, don't you want to say, God is faithful. He will keep his people. Paul wanted to say that, and he did in verse 9. Look there. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a glorious way to end this prayer of thanksgiving. It is only fitting, after praying in thanks about the grace of Christ and riches of Christ and gospel of Christ and gifts of Christ and the return of Christ, to close thanking God for this fellowship of Christ. What does this phrase mean? This is the ultimate ground and goal of all salvation. It speaks of our union with Christ. This means more than just having fellowship with the Son, which is our communion with Him, communing with Him, enjoying Him, relating to Him through His Word and prayer and His people and and knowing and loving Him personally. That's fellowship with the Son. But I believe this phrase speaks of the reality that is fundamental to that communion. It is our union with the Son. It is our being joined to Him. Like in a marriage where the two become one flesh and their mortal lives become one and all that belongs to one becomes the others. And so now they have all things in common. The fellowship of the Son is the koinonia of the Son. Koine just means common. It is coming to share in a common life with the Son. It is partnership in participation in all that he has received from God as the incarnate Son. John Calvin says, When the Father gives Christ to us in possession, hence arises a participation in every benefit. When we are enriched in Christ, we are members of his body. Nay, more. I wish we would say nay more often. Nay, more. Being made one with Him, He makes us share with Him in everything He has received from the Father. In another place, Calvin says, we are so joined to our Lord Jesus Christ that He does not have anything of His own which He does not share with us and of which He will not have us as partakers. To be called into the fellowship of the Son means the Son graciously makes all that he has as the incarnate son makes all that he has something that he has in common with you. It means you share in Christ's life, death, resurrection, eternal life. You share in his reception of the spirit, in his status as a beloved son of the father, in his inheritance from the father, in his enthronement beside the Father, we will reign with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You share in his kingdom with the Father, and you share in his glorification from the Father, because when we see him, we will be made like him. 
Entering into the fellowship of the Son means becoming a partaker of Christ, a member of Christ, a partner of Christ, a participant in Christ's blessings and the benefits of His work. And didn't we talk about this truth earlier? The world, all of God's people, life itself, death, the present, the future, all are yours. Because all these things are Christ's. And you are Christ's. And how did the Corinthians end up in this position to be joined with Christ? How does anyone end up sharing in Christ's life and blessings in common with him like this? Look again in closing at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. You must be called by God into this union because you and your sinful heart would never choose it for yourself. You would always prefer your sin. But God works in power to call some sinners to to speak into their heart to where they see the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ as He is offered in the gospel. And so it makes them willing to come to Christ and be joined to Him and be bound to Him by faith alone and receive freely, freely, all of the grace of Christ and the riches of Christ and a confirmation of the gospel of Christ and the gifts of Christ and glory in the return of Christ. And all of this comes through participation in the fellowship of Christ. And we should follow Paul's example and and give thanks for these things. Should we not? Let's do that now. God, we thank you. You have called us. You've called us into the fellowship of your Son. And you are faithful. You will keep us there. You will not cut off any true member of Christ's body. Thank you for such rich grace that you give us in Christ. I pray that you would help us to be more thankful and thankful more deeply from closer to the bottom of our heart that we would be thankful to you for how you have blessed us in this way and make us more thankful for how you have blessed all of the other Christians around us and especially the other members of our church family in this way. And I pray it would make a real difference in how we treat each other for the glory of Christ. We ask these things and and pray it in Jesus' name.